Welcome back to another episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I'm your host, Freddie Cocker, and this podcast is brought to you by Vent, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas, and start conversations. As you may know by now, in each episode, I check in with a special guest. We have a natter and a chat about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we discuss it. My special guest for today's episode is a man called George, who is the founder of a blog and platform called The Tin Men. The Tin Men aims to widen the perspectives around men, tackle uncomfortable conversations and ugly truths, and expose the unpopular other half of gender equality, as well as men's mental health more widely. George started the platform around the end of 2019 and the start of 2020, and started posting on the account and building the platform during the first COVID-19 lockdown. Since then, he has built a significant following and has appeared on Chris Williamson's massive Modern Wisdom podcast, as well as a few other platforms to discuss the issues he highlights. George tackles the issues affecting men from a left-wing perspective, like author and academic Richard V. Reeves, which is a rarity in the current political climate where the issues affecting men have largely been left to those on the right. Some of those men have noble goals, Others will happily exploit the vacuum left for their own personal or political ambitions. In this episode, we discuss the origin of the Tin Men and the issues George discusses through a mental health lens. These include male domestic abuse victims, male suicide, working class boys and boys more generally struggling in education, fatherlessness, sexual abuse in men's prisons, the sexualization of a teenage Justin Bieber by predominantly but not exclusively female celebrities, and whether male circumcision is actually male genital mutilation or not. For George's mental health, we discuss living with anxiety and the physical symptoms that it manifests in him. We also talk about how he's been a carer for a loved one and the impact that had on his mental health and the wider conversation about carers more generally. So this is how my conversation with George from the Tin Men went. George, welcome to the Just Checking Pod. Thank you very much for letting me check in with you. I think the work that you're doing with the Tim Men is fantastic. And I first came across you through previous guest, Will Hayes. So he shouted you out. So thank you to Will. How are you, mate, first of all? Good, thank you. Sort of stuck in that nether region between Christmas and New Year's where everyone drifts around, doesn't know what to do. Do you go back to work? Do you not go back to work? It's, it's a very odd moment. It's an odd moment in time, but I'm good, thank you. Excellent. When you said nether region, I didn't know where that was going for a second, but glad you meant <laughs> Christmas and New Year's. It's the Christmas nether region, mate. <laughs> but what do you do? There's a time like that five, I think it's just a time to completely switch off. Mm. And that's what I've tried to do as much as possible, although not entirely successful in doing that. Yeah, I've tried that, but then now I'm doing podcasts every day until I go back to work. So. <laughs> I know. Well, I consider creating content to be something that I find therapeutic and relaxing. So in many yes. t- many ways, it, it, that is time off for me. Yeah. yeah, it keeps my routine as well without just kind of watching TV shows all day and then feeling my brain's just gone to mush. So definitely. Yeah. I am definitely not as big a podcast or as good looking as Chris Williamson, but I hope I do as good a job as he did on his episode with you, mate. So without further delay, are you ready to start the show? Ready. Sounds good. And don't put yourself down. I mean, Chris is obviously very attractive, but I mean, from what I can see, you're also a good looking guy. Cheers, mate. 
Let's start your pod, mate, by diving into the work that you do as the Tin Men or the platform that you've built. So firstly, tell me back to the beginning. Where did you get the idea for it, maybe the inspiration behind the name and the journey to where it is today? Well, I mean, the Tin Men has been many different things over the years. It started off purely as a resource for myself and myself only. I mean, I, I spent a lot of time in discourse around gender equality in a lot of feminist and progressive liberal spaces and I wanted to have information at easy reach below the table and quite literally below the table so I could read about domestic violence, sexual abuse, homelessness, addiction, suicide, all the issues I talk about. I wanted them down here so I could talk about it in good faith. And I found that the more I had these conversations, the people opposite me, they couldn't quite reconcile with a lot of the things I was talking about. <laughs> so as an example, someone would be talking about violence against women. So I'd be like, I understand violence against women is an important issue, but check beneath the table. Why is it centered on women when 81% of homicide victims are men? And then I found the information interesting, but I was more interested in people's reaction, which is 99% mm. of the time anger, shouting, abuse, finger in face, spitting, literally. And you kept on doing it. <laughs> I kept on doing it. I mean, I find that motivating because I find that phenomenon very, very interesting. And the more people shout me down, the more people tell me to shut up the more I want to post content. I used to post content once a week and then people got me shadow banned and I made it three times a week and then I got shadow banned and then made it five times a week and then it was every single day. They're not learning their lesson, right? I was just like, look, you are not more stubborn than I am. I promise you that. So let's save the time and just go our separate ways. Anyway, like, I guess it went from being beneath the table just for my personal use to people following and then it grew and it grew and I got onto different podcasts because people wanted to hear me express mm. my thoughts on these facts. And then 60,000-odd followers later, I'm sat right here. I guess I spent a bit more time making my content more accessible, more interesting, more creative for other people, not just a library of information. It's changed a lot, and I've sort of archived away my old posts, and I've got a new style, and it's been a very interesting creative journey. It's been like two simultaneous journeys. It's been one journey learning about the issues themselves, which I mentioned, but also a, a creative journey about how do I take these issues that people are really do not want to talk about Mm. and make people eat them yes i always think about it as like when your mum in my case would try and get me to eat my vegetables this thing that was good for me but i didn't want she'd you know disguise as an airplane and be like meow <laughs> and i guess i'm doing the grown-up equivalent of that there's this fact like facts that people do not want to hear so one fact is 50 percent of domestic violence victims are men people don't want to hear that that's very unpopular to say but nonetheless it's entirely true how do i take that fact and get people to eat it like vegetables. So that's the second journey, the creative journey, and then the academic informative journey. It's been really good fun. And what about the name, mate? The name, well, I, I mean, my name's George, but I couldn't use my full name, and I still don't use my full name. Uh, Fair so enough. I, I needed a pseudonym because like, it, is, it is unpopular. So I went with the Tin Men, because the Tin Man from Wizard of Oz is a character who joins Dorothy on her journey, and the Tin Man is basically trying to find his heart. That's his whole journey. And at the end of the story, it turns out he already had a heart. That's a spoiler, I'm afraid. And I was like, the Tin Man is a very interesting parallel story, quite adjacent to what I think the male experience is. The men are told that they are soulless, made of stone, haven't got a heart. And then every man in his life realizes he does have a heart. And uh, every man is a Tin Man. And that's where I came from. It also it was an interesting second reason behind the Tin Men that I found interesting is that the villain of The Wizard of Oz is the Wicked Witch of the West. And I'm telling you, there's a lot of witches in my life. A lot of wicked witches. I guess I'm trying to defeat the witch at the end of the Yellow Brick Road. So that's the story. The Tin Men. 
That's a very nice analogy, man. I love that name. I, I, I did think it was Wizard of Oz inspired, but I really love the parallel that you used there. You, mm. as I said in the intro, started the Tin Men during the first COVID-19 lockdown. Mm. And I'm not going to say that COVID was a good thing, but was the lockdown some sort of blessing in disguise? As I imagine you had quite a lot of time on your hands, so mm. you may have been forced to start posting more on the platform purely as a way of maintaining your sanity than anything else. Yeah, like I like to be productive. One of the things that's linked to my mental health is that I gain a lot of mental benefit. I talked about this earlier. Like I like taking time off, but I also like creating content as a way of mm. sort of therapy for me. So I use the Tin Man as a way of getting through the lockdown a little bit. Like it's something to do with my time, something to make myself So did I, mate, <laughs> with my podcast. Like Two me, podcasts a week, every <laughs> week. Wow, congrats. <laughs> I mean, I totally get it. Like to be sat there, just, you know, twiddling my thumbs is not, not, I hate that. And I, I want to f- create content. I want to create content that's meaningful. And I enjoy creating my full-time job as I run a production company, a film company. Mm. I love my clients. I love the work we do. But I often find the clients, they're just a bit overbearing. They're kind of telling you exactly what to do, micromanaging you. And I always wanted a creative space so I could create content purely for my own benefit and interest. And that's what the Tin Men was. So that scratched that itch as well. But also in general, I, real- I noticed an interesting, and I wrote about it before, an interesting parallel between the experience of lockdown and the experience of being a man. Whenever women ask me, like, what does it feel like to be a man? One of the ways in which it feels is a bit like lockdown, where, just thinking back, it was a crazy time three years ago, where you walk in the streets, people are afraid of you, people step back, you go to a supermarket, Mm. everyone's afraid, everyone leans back, like someone crosses the road quite literally to get past you. Even, like, the fact that your emotions are masked, and that feeling of unease and fear and uncertainty and loneliness and isolation... And any physical intimacy is banned and you're not allowed to touch people, you're not allowed to go close to people. That's what it feels like to be a man in an extreme way. But I guess men continue to live like that. I found lockdown to be a heightened version of the male experience that mm. I think anyone can relate to. I think everyone felt that way in some sense. And I was like, that to me is the essence of the male experience. And uh, I know it was quite a formative time, lockdown, and a lot mm. of time to be used. And I think, I hope I used it well. It did exist a few months before that maybe six months before that, but it was really when during lockdown when I put my foot on the gas. What I love about your content, mate, and what makes it so compelling and powerful is that A, it's really creative and it's really well designed and really shareable and also your evidence-based approach where everything you post about is well-sourced and airtight. However, because of the issues you discuss, I imagine because of the, as you mentioned earlier, with the labeling you might get, Mm. you may get labeled a men's rights activist or MRA or someone even worse than that. Has that happened and how do you respond to that accusation or accusations when it comes your way? So I don't understand why men's rights activist is being used as a pejorative. People use it as an insult, like men's rights activist. And I just think people fundamentally misunderstand what MRAs are all about. I don't consider myself an MRA anyway. I don't consider myself a feminist anymore. I don't like labels in general. I don't want to be part of any group. I don't want to be part of any yeah. tribe. I just want to be- As Jordan Peter says, abandon ideology. <laughs> yeah. Well, I just want to be held accountable for my own ideas and my own actions. And I don't want to be mm. put into a group. I don't want to be part of some sort of tribal A team versus B team, mm. red versus blue. You're just feminism. George. I'm just George. Yeah. I want George to be defined by a collection of individual ideas that I can add to and take away, like a pick and mix. 100%. I'm exactly the same, mate. 100%. Like, I agree. That's how pick and mix yeah. works. I mean, I, to be honest, I talk about this pick and mix concept about when you go, if there's any American followers, pick and mix is basically where you have different sweets. <laughs> Woolworths. <laughs> Woolworths, exactly. So kind of, is it an English thing? I don't know. But it's like you have like cherry fizzy bottles, cola bottles. Jazzies, like, mate. I got a, a tin of them for my mum for Christmas, mate. Oh, my God. 
and you yeah. go to the shop. You cola the sco- bottles. Some yeah. people take just the cola bottles and they fill their bag up with just cola bottles. Whereas I like to take a bit of everything. Yes. Like, you know, a gobstopper, chewing gum, lollipop. And I, might, I want my political opinions to be the same as that. Mm. And I don't consider myself an MRA. I, do, I get called it all the time. So like, do I sometimes. <laughs> and it's like, I don't, want it, I don't want that to become a handle around which someone can pick it up mm. and just start flinging me about. Well, it's like incel now is now sort of pejorative for anyone in this. Which in, is crazy. Of, yeah, it's crazy, which isn't is it? I, mean, I thought we abandoned the term virgin insulting in high school, didn't we? Or secondary school. The interesting thing about incel is that when people, because obviously incel is an important term. Incel is a self-prescribed term given to certain people who are actually incels. It's something they call themselves, a self-identifying term. But mm. now it's being used as a insult any man that sort of dares speak out against feminism or dares speak in a way that I talk and it's gross like mm. the people that use incel as an insult what they don't realize is that they are perpetuating the very sex versus value system that slut shaming is based on I was going to say it's like reverse such slut shaming but for men isn't it yeah, yeah it's yeah. like it's it's you're basically perpetuating the same value system as slut shaming and the crazy thing is the people that are against slut shaming which includes myself they're the people that call me incel and I'm like listen you're incentivizing men to go and have sex, basically. It's the Spider-Man get... meme. <laughs> yeah, it's just like you. And these people, they're just ignorant and too stupid to realize their own ignorance, even when it's right in their face. Yep. And I'm like... Or if it is, they just put the fingers in the ears. Yeah, vibe. it's that. Yeah. And it's like, insult is an important term and important issue. And by just using it as a generalized insult against men, you're just diluting the concept. You're making it very difficult to understand you're making it about you. You're making it about mm. insults and hating men. And I'm like, the actual incel crisis is not helped either. It's crazy, the value system. that Men's value is attached to how little sex they have, whereas women's is how much sex they have. And it's like, it's all the same. It's the same continuum. Yeah, it's bizarre. You're tackling and highlighting this, these issues from a left-wing perspective. Although, although, like you said, you like the pick and mix and you take things from different places. Mm. The left has in my opinion, largely, not totally, abandoned a lot of men's issues in the wider mainstream conversation. And it's been led or left to people like Jordan Peterson, who probably identifies as a conservative now and other conservative men. Mm. There are exceptions like Richard V. Reeves and yourself, mate. Why do you think that is? Because I just think the left has become so enamoured of women's rights and particularly feminism that the theories of feminism do not leave any space for the issues that I talk about to be reconciled. So I don't want to talk about women's rights because women's rights are something that everyone should support and I do support, but I'm not a feminist. So you can be an advocate of women's rights, but not a feminist, which is what I am. But I feel like the left has basically used feminism as a poster child for leftist politics around gender. And unfortunately, a lot of the ideas that feminism brings to discourse do not leave space for what I'm talking about. So patriarchy theory, very difficult to reconcile some of the things I talk about within the concept of patriarchy theory. Like, if anything, domestic violence, which I mentioned earlier, people see domestic violence as the physical manifestation of patriarchy. So that's a man controlling a woman through physical violence. Or other means, yeah. Or coercion, other means, yeah, but, yeah. Coercion, but basically, it's a physical manifestation of men's control over women. And when I say, well, women are just as likely to abuse a man, and women are just as likely to use power and control as a motive for that abuse, patriarchy theory goes straight out the window mm. in the context of domestic violence. And a lot of people, a lot of the left, are not willing to have that type of discussion, especially when they've had patriarchy theory on a placard waving around their entire lives. They've got the placard, they've worn the T-shirt, they've badged themselves so ardently with these ideas, and they've built their community around it, they've often built their jobs around it, their friendship groups are based on these ideas, 
and they're not willing to challenge as it is because it's built into who they are, who, what they identify as. And going back to what I said about, I don't want to wear labels because I want to be able to change my label at any given moment. And when you've had a label on your entire life and so much of who you are is based on that label, very difficult to change. And that's what well, yeah, and it's the bastardization, I guess, and diluting of even the term, because I still think there is a space for that term in certain examples. So, for example, the Taliban in Afghanistan right. or femicide yeah. in Mexico <clears throat> yeah. or Iran and the complete subjugation of women's rights there. Those, I think, would be actually fairly accurate examples mm. of patriarchy but Absolutely. it's now used so prominently i think a lot of men just think well, well this is just rubbish now yeah and i mean and just just words and i mean i'm i'm happy to say women are not oppressed in the west neither are men like the word oppressed really needs to be reserved for the very real oppression of women in the ways you described and a lot of that i would say is down to religion i would say we could learn a lot more about cultural misogyny by investigating religion rather than talking about men as a generalized group I mean, I'm agnostic myself, and there is a lot of blood on the hands of religion. A lot of women's rights have been erased and subjugated by religious figures. That's a more healthy, tangible conversation to have, rather than just generalised talk about the patriarchy, aka mm. men. But yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm happy to say, like, there's parts of the world where patriarchy, in that sense, would exist and does exist, and we need to talk about those. But we're not doing enough, are we? That's the other And also historically yeah. as well, historically it's relevant too. The first issue I want to talk about in depth, mate, is male suicide. And this is one we both care obviously mm. passionately about. Six years ago when I first started Vent, I was sometimes hearing about a man either I knew or knew of or, you know, variously online taking his own life sometimes every other week. And there's been a lot of positive work done to tackle this issue, but we still have a long way to go, in my opinion, for many reasons. Mm-hmm. What is your perspective on this? You're right that I mean over the past few years I've seen a lot more discussion around male suicide. It's been made a lot more visible and men's mental health in general. Very welcome those campaigns. A lot of them around men talking, encouraging men to be more expressive of their emotions, a lot of encouragement men to cry and to talk to their mates and express their sadness and fear and vulnerability. And although I welcome such discussions, I also get frustrated. They're very limited though, aren't they? They're limited and those discussions can only go so far. Mm. Unless we as a society are willing to listen to yes, what Yes, we're not listening, in my opinion. So we're not listening. As an example, go back to domestic violence. 11% of men who are abused will attempt to take their life. 11%. So it's very all well and good asking men to talk. But if we're not willing as a society to talk about male victims of domestic abuse and how that's related heavily to suicide, then I'm not sure what the point is. And the fact of the matter is we do not support male victims of abuse. About 1% of funding in refuge goes to men who are abused. And 99% <laughs> if there's women. even any refuges open, mate. No, there are, well, not a lot. I mean, there aren't really any. I mean, it's complicated, but generally, no. There's nowhere to go for men. And I'm like, what's the point? Okay, men can talk. Great. What is he saying? He's saying, I'm being abused by my partner. I don't feel I can take it any longer. His problem is not really solved by him telling us. We solve that problem by opening refuges for men, giving them support and same for women, more funding for male victims of abuse. So... I often find this men can talk, although helpful, is often used as a way for politicians to basically wash their hands of the problem itself. 
And what's the response, mate? You know, I remember a BBC News article came out where a men's domestic abuse charity was talking to men who had experienced domestic abuse. And they were saying, as I've spoken to to a fair few male guests, that their female perpetrators had made false accusations Mm. of domestic abuse or sexual abuse in order Mm. to A, keep the control and coercion over them, or B, try and take them away from their kids and other reasons like that. And the reaction that got was, this doesn't happen. This doesn't happen. And I was like, okay, so one of the main things about men in disclosure of mental health is trust mm. and they've just done that what is that going to tell them they are never going to talk about that again no and no, i mean it's often waved away as a very small minority of accusations are false even more alarmingly even our own domestic violence organizations such as women's aid and refuge have played a central role in minimizing the phenomenon of false accusations very difficult to understand what the true number is i normally cite eight percent eight percent of sexual abuse and domestic violence allegations are false which is like one in 12, and in considerable amount. I mean, it's difficult because it could be less, it could be more. I mean, hypothetically. Mm, Under-reporting, isn't it? Yeah, it's hard to say. Yeah, yeah, it's difficult, but I mean, we we can safely say it's not, you know, once in a blue moon. It's quite often, and it happens a lot around the context of family court, as you said. So two parents fighting for child custody, let's say they're both equally likely to get the child. As soon as the mother basically accuses the man of domestic violence, especially child abuse, that conversation's over. Child custody is heavily steeped in her favour. And also she'll get um, legal aid, meaning her legal bills are now covered by the council or the government. And that's where a lot of allegations happen and you can see why it happens. If you're fighting for your child, if you can just make up a lie for which you're not necessarily required to provide evidence, you're going to do that. Well, some people are going to do that. And that's where it often happens. And it doesn't help by saying, that doesn't exist or it does exist in a small number. But I mean, I guess we talked a lot about the unpopular facts I share False allegations are one of the most unpopular things to talk about. Mm. Very controversial because you can't you can't talk about it without also risking distracting from the very real victims of male violence, women who are actually abused by men who are then doubted when they shouldn't be doubted. So they yes. they are a Correct. secondary victim of a woman that makes a false accusation. They're not only harming men, but they're also harming real victims. So obviously Amber Heard, great example of that. The damage she's done to women is just very difficult to even comprehend. Still women defending her, mate, which is mad. It's great. Absolutely crazy. You could not have watched a trial. Like, I watched the whole trial. I listened to all the evidence. (laughs) I feel for you, mate. That whole trial was a mess. (laughs) It was just like a joke. And I was disappointed at how the media handled it because it just became an opportunity to ridicule Amber and make memes about her and basically bully her. It could have been a really good opportunity to understand violent women and male victims, but it wasn't. And at least it made male victims a bit more visible, but. For about three seconds. Yeah, it just came a bit of a circus and embarrassing. I guess my point is that the amount of damage she did to women who are telling the truth is horrendous. Mm. You said something really interesting on Chris Williamson's podcast, mate, which is you argued that a lot of men struggling with their mental health don't see themselves as mentally ill, but just struggling with other issues that are causing Mm. their mental health to deteriorate. So, for example, like we've said, divorce, but Mm. also unemployment losing mm. custody of their children, relationship breakdown outside of marriage or within it. Just unpack that for me. Well, that was specifically in the context of male suicide. So the latest research is showing that the majority of men who are suicidal don't conceptualise their problem as a mental health problem. They conceptualise the problem as an external yes, problem, yep. a structural problem that's placing pressure onto them. So as you said, child custody, losing child custody, that isn't a mental health problem. That's a child custody problem. A man losing his job, going into debt, not paying the mortgage, that isn't a mental health problem necessarily. That's a financial problem. And although mental health problems come out of that, like anxiety, depression, yeah, yeah. the cause is a financial problem. 
the cause is a family problem. Relationship breakdown is associated to like one in three suicides. That isn't necessarily a mental problem. That's a relational problem. So that's another issue where we talked about earlier about that's the problem of male suicide discourse is that we seem to love to put the problem inside of a man's head and say men's problems only exist within their own mind and only they can fix it through some sort of changing of a toxic mindset or challenging their inner patriarchy. We make men responsible entirely for the problems they experience when in fact a lot of the time they don't have control of their problem. A man cannot win his child back if the family court system is broken and uh, a man cannot necessarily get his job back by talking about it or fixing mm. a toxic mindset. We're so, solutions focused, aren't we? We want solutions to the problem. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's in a sad way, a lot of men consider suicide a rational yes, as a solution, solution-based yes, outcome. They're like, well, mm-hmm. I can't get a job. I'm losing money. I can't pay the mortgage. If I die by suicide, my partner or my children will get money. And they're like, well, that's the solution. That's the only solution I've got Horrible, left. Horrible, mate. Horrible. And that, that happens all the time. So yeah, they see it as a solution-based outcome to solving their problems. You use the term there, toxic, and something that I used to use as a term was toxic masculinity in an attempt to help the conversation. Mm. Now, I don't and haven't done for a fair few years because I don't find it helpful and I've accepted my mistake in using it previously. And I Mm. believe now that when men who go through these difficulties hear that phrase, I believe it sends them the message that their pain is their fault Mm. simply because of their sex, victim blaming, if you will, Mm. which they have no control over. Do you agree with that? And how do we help challenge this narrative? Yeah, it sounds like we've had a parallel experience of that i mean i i used to be a proponent of the toxic masculinity discourse you'd be like right? toxic masculinity and positive masculinity you, you, you da, 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 da. Your toxic yeah. masculinity right now yeah like the problem with toxic masculinity as a concept is it again it limits men's problems to internalized issues and the message sends to young boys as well i was very key to challenge as well yeah yeah like basically personal failings or internalized issues of men that's as much as we're willing to acknowledge whereas as you've said the issues that impact men are often and largely externalized and that, that this is a phenomenon we only seem to do for men. For women, when a woman has an issue, we ask, like, how can we fix society? But if a man has an issue, even if it's the same issue, we say, how can a man fix himself? And it's like, not just men, but boys. So if you follow my account, you'll know that boys in education in the West are falling further and further behind. Boys are behind every level of education in every single Western country, with a few exceptions. It's really bad. And in the UK, they've been behind for 33 consecutive years. It's a big problem. And whenever you say boys are behind, you almost always just hear, well, they should try harder. Maybe boys are just not as smart as girls. And I'm like, we just wouldn't say that to girls. And we didn't say that to girls when they were behind. We changed the system. And it's set, like if a man is ill, men should go to the doctor more. If a man is depressed, men should talk more. If a man is assaulted on the street, well, who did it? And it's like, we don't open up the conversation any more than just it's the man's problem and only men can fix it. And we see that in toxic masculinity, we see that in patriarchy theory, both, in my opinion, very divisive and naive mm. worldviews that just really alienate men. I don't think many men enjoy being called toxic. In fact, I know that most of them don't and they find it insulting. And a lot, a lot of the literature says that men who embrace masculine norms actually have better mental health outcomes. So it doesn't even make And sense. women are more attracted to them, less be yeah, real. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> ooh, oh no. Not all women, but in general. Not all women, and, but in uh, general, yeah. Masculinity yeah, is, is desirable, yeah. Sure. Before we move on, there is a widely reported statistic or narrative, mate, that more women attempt suicide, but more men complete, in air quotes, suicide attempts because mm. they use more violent methods and mm. therefore die. Now, is this true? Because I've seen you dispute that narrative. And it's mm. one which is, I think, fairly unchallenged in the mainstream mental health conversation. I hate this conversation, by the way. 
I really hate Yeah, sorry, I had to do it. I no, I, 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 will, I will address what you said. I have disputed it, and it is very highly disputable. But the most important point is that anyone that engages in this discussion of competing who attempts or completes suicide more, I just find... You're it's horrible, talking, isn't it? It's like a competition of suicide. Of, you're, you're talking horrific. to some sort of dickhead online in the comment section and you should just move on because mm. ultimately this is not a competition and who even wants to win that competition? Every suicide is important. Male suicide, female suicide, it's all equally important. Yes, men complete suicide more often. About three and four suicides are male. And people argue, wow, women, women attempt more. I always find it interesting because if people say male suicide is because they're toxic i'm like well if women attempt more that they must be more toxic than men obviously i don't think that it's an obscene thing to say if you follow that narrative then yeah yeah yeah, i'm like we'd be consistent but the problem is that people well people say men use more violent means such as guns but an easy way to look at that is in the uk where we live there's you know only a handful of gun deaths every single year like very few maybe 30 or 40 gun deaths a year they're normally gang-related as well and gang more and then i'm like well if that's true then you'd expect to be fewer male suicides in the uk but we have the same three or four to one distribution of suicide in the UK. So that doesn't quite make sense. But also the wider problem is that when people say women attempt more, they're collecting all suicides as equal, but you have a different, you have different types of suicide. You have serious suicide attempts where someone's like, I've had enough. I want to end my life. And men are overrepresented in that. No question. Men make up the vast majority of serious suicide attempts. Whereas women more often engage in what's called parasuicide and basically self-harming behavior. Often that is basically a cry for help. In, in a colloquial form. And women are overrepresented in that and they are overrepresented in self-harm too. But often that's collected as part of suicide in general and that's how more women attempt. But often it's not a serious suicide attempt. When it comes to actual serious suicide attempts, men attempt more. Although men do use more violent means, they use more all means. Men are more likely to kill themselves for every single means, including non-violent ones. The only method of suicide where men are not overrepresented is drowning. Drowning, so that's the only one that's actually not overrepresented for men but I, i'm going to end end this question of just how i started it and it doesn't mean women's suicide is less important and i feel like anyone that engages in this discussion is just doesn't really care about men or women they just want to beat the other side and engage in what i talked about earlier this tribal style of politics rather than actually looking at the problem as a whole which is suicide and men and women are both vulnerable to it I want to move on back to domestic abuse before we come on to education, mate, because do you see hope for the narrative changing when, for example, an outlet like Jezebel, who infamously wrote an article in 2007 called, have you ever beaten up yeah. a boyfriend? Because uh, we have, has now gone out of business. Mm. I don't find this phrase that I'm going to use particularly useful now, but I can't think of any other suitable one other than go woke, go broke. <laughs> I don't think that's, I mean, that's not woke. They're just assholes. <laughs> like there's, there's nothing work about that like basically that article was written the interesting thing is a study came out by daniel whittaker that found that half of domestic violence is bilateral so half of domestic violence is both partners doing it and of the remaining half where only one partner is doing it 70 percent of that half is by women so the most common form of abuse is bilateral and then it's female perpetrated and then it's male perpetrated very interesting study and that's what that article was written about but instead of writing a really interesting piece about female perpetration of abuse. Jezebel just basically made it a chance for their own editors and writers to basically brag and compare stories about them physically abusing their partner. So one of them punched their boyfriend in the face and broke his glasses. Another one hit them. Like They're just basically saying, this is what I've done, this is what... And then the title is something like, have you ever hit your male partner? Because uh, we have. And I'm like, you would not get GQ, for example, writing stories about how their male editors beat up their girlfriends. 
And thankfully, Jezebel have now gone bankrupt, which is excellent news. Rest that's in a, piss. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, I mean, I was like, what? That's Christmas come early for me. Um, <laughs> yeah, my previous guest uh, and good friend James Bloodworth replied to the news article about it with Mourinho when he wins the Europa League with Roma and he's just running <laughs> through this, running on the pitch. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I did that in a, in a very literal way. I was like, celebrating great. I hope all those, the women that wrote that crap, they just don't find work elsewhere. Or they just admit they were wrong. Like, well, who knows? That's... But they kept the article up. It's still up now. It's not like they've taken it I know, it it's mad, isn't it? I actually went to Google it and I still found it. Mad. I still see it now. But that is the overall feminist perspective of domestic violence against men, where it's, you know, a trivial thing. It's a joke. It's not a big deal. Don't worry about it. It's certainly not as significant as violence against women. And although Jezebel is clearly just an article written by a bunch of fragile whinge bags, there are very big billion-dollar charities and corporations that are perpetuating that exact same message in a very real, more damaging way. So we're talking about Refuge and Women's Aid, the two big charities in the UK. And there's lots in America too. They're doing that. They're behind the scenes trying to stop domestic violence being recognised as a gender-neutral issue. So the UK government, about a year or two ago, said we're going to treat domestic violence as gender-neutral. And guess who was protesting it? Refuge UK and Women's Aid. They were trying to stop it being seen as a gender-neutral issue because they would lose funding because they don't offer any support for male victims of abuse. And if the government were like, right, we want funding to go to all genders, not just women, then Refuge would have to accept men, which they never will do, or share the money, which they won't do either. So although Jezebel is not that interesting, there are very big malevolent forces that perpetuate that same message in a much more dangerous way but behind the scenes. You spoke about popular portrayals there and very recently I binge watched Avatar The Last Airbender because they're doing a live action coming out soon and I actually watched the sequel which is called The Legend of Korra and as you said that I thought of a character plot in it where Bo Lin is a character he gets basically I would say coercive controlled and domestically abused by one of the characters on the show and it's essentially portrayed as a joke there's a scene where he has to like escape from her because she tries to make him marry her and then like she's seen like water bending chasing after him with like makeup like streaming down her face in tears and it's like he's like running away from her Mm. but it's like it's basically portrayed as a joke Mm. I found that quite unsettling actually well I did I put up a tweet earlier someone found a book and I can't remember the title of it exactly but it was like how to get your man to be obedient using dog trading lessons and it's basically a book about how to get a man to do what you want to do using that's like south park when he gets the dog whisperer with Cartman, yeah. isn't it so i was like first Jesus. of all you're basically teaching women how to manipulate and control men and secondly you're comparing men to dogs so i'm like double whammy of ridiculous bullshit <laughs> in one but that is a very common theme you see how to get your man to do exactly what i want to how to control your man to get him to do this and then like this book's about how to destroy a man's life and like it's just very there are so many so-called self-help articles that are just basically how to coercively control your male partner, but written in a very flowery, seemingly harmless way. But I'm like, you're just teaching women how to abuse men. It's crazy. Again, another double standard. You never see an article written by a men's magazine, or I hope you wouldn't, saying how to control women. But you'd see a lot of articles saying how to control your boyfriend, how to manipulate your boyfriend. One of them is how to manipulate your boyfriend without him even realizing and i'm like wow crazy you also found a very dark facebook group which had something ridiculous like two hundred and fifty thousand members of women just like bragging about their domestic abuse history it wasn't i mean it's two hundred thousand and i'm two hundred thousand sorry say that they're not all doing it it was basically a group uh it's called bad (laughs) it's basically a lot of bad women there were whole threads of women 
talking about how they've beaten up their boyfriends, how they've abused their boyfriends. Jesus and they were just Christ. like, yes, queen, you go, girl, you show that man. And I'm like, I'm sure spaces like that exist for men, unfortunately. But again, it's not as visible or it's not as like celebrated. There was a probably an even better example of that where there's an Instagram account, still exists, go and check it out. It's got about at least a million, maybe even two million followers called Hot Dudes Reading. And it was just basically photos of men on the underground, so the Metro or the London Underground in the UK. And it's just basically, as it describes, photos of men reading books that were attractive. And now those men are not being asked for their consent. They're like sneakily taken and they're being put on this Instagram account. And the comments are so horrible, so sexual and perverse. And I'm like, again, you would not have an Instagram account called Hot Girls Reading, where a bunch of like candid photos, unknowingly taken of women, attractive women, reading books, put onto an Instagram account, and then just completely peppered with these horrific comments. You'd be checking those lads' hard drive, let's be real. Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, it's gross. It's like, how is it acceptable to write these things about these men? They didn't agree to have their photo taken, and they certainly haven't agreed, agreed to be sexually objectified. And I'm like, it's not acceptable, in my opinion. Mm. But again, millions of followers. And it's just not seen as a problem. I want to move on to education here because you've spoken about it a little mm. bit already. And in primary school settings, the overwhelming majority of teachers are female. Mm. Now, I was very fortunate in my primary school that when I was sexually abused by my primary school bully when I was eight years old, I had a very strong, influential male head teacher who was able to handle it really well and protected me. Mm. When we have this sex imbalance, and I'm not here to say this is wrong or this is right, but when we do have this imbalance, how do you think it impacts those young boys at that age? Well, you've got to see the problem within the context of white society, which is an overall lack of positive male role models in the life of mm. all children, but especially boys. So you've got to look at it in the context of growing issue of fatherlessness. About yep. one in four, one in three children have no father. They get home, they go to school, 80 or 90% of the teachers are women. I got to year five before I had a male teacher and he only lasted one year and he was out. So it was back to being no male teacher. Yeah, same. I had one male teacher year four and then I'm a head teacher, but he left at the end of year five. So yeah. I mean, my brother-in-law was a teacher and he left as well. And the facts are like one in four schools in England have no male teachers. So not a single male teacher in one in four primary schools. Wow. In America, Richard Reeves says, there are twice as many women flying fighter jets in the military than there are male teachers teaching in kindergarten. Jesus. So it's, it's, it is an insane problem, and it exists within a wider context of a lack of male role models. So very few fathers, very few men in schools. The discussion of men as role models on TV is awful. We get mm. bombarded with the toxic masculinity that, the patriarchy this. If you look at like role models in kids' cartoons, like you have like Homer Simpson, pretty poor role model, Peter Griffin, again, incompetent, inept clown. Hal from Malcolm in the Middle. Oh, I loved Hal, though. Hal was good, though, surely. I thought Hal was positive. He was pretty incompetent. Yeah, but he's like a big kid. He's like the balance, the lowest. (laughs) I get that. I get that. I mean, I'm not in favour of a very sanitised portrayal of men. I do enjoy that role model, too. But when it's just every single father TV is this this complete oaf. I mean, I know people talk about Peppa Pig. I don't watch Peppa Pig, but apparently the daddy pig is also a complete clown. And then in advertising, in fact, in advertising, the Advertising Standards Authority got so fed up with this trope of incompetent father figures that they banned it. And they started actually banning adverts that showed fathers as incompetent. And I'm like, all right, I'm in favour of that. Like, we need to start lifting up fathers because we're asking fathers to take equal responsibility for children, which is fair enough. But we're not giving them equal respect. We're not giving them equal rights. And I was like, those two things have to happen in tandem, in my opinion. Mm. 
So yes, there are very few teachers in school, but that exists within a, a wider dearth of positive male role models in all areas mm. of life. So if it was just a school thing, not a big problem, but because it exists everywhere, it's a massive problem. There is definitely an argument when it comes to biological differences between men and women and what men and women stereotypically are attracted to jobs-wise, and I'm not here to have a conversation about that. However, when this picture is established for so long, is there a danger here that men will look at a primary school teacher and think it's not for them because of Mm. the domination of women and it will therefore create a vicious cycle? So maybe men who were considering it either for financial reasons, don't do it, or just because they think, oh, that's not a job for me, so I can't go into it? Uh, I think there's, uh, we talk a lot about the old boys club in certain areas like financial industry, a bit of an old, old boys club, and it's right that we confront that to help women enter that industry. But there's certainly Correct. an old, old girls club, and uh, there is a, a real protectivism of female-dominated spaces, just as there is for male-dominated spaces, and not just in school, but in like the playground. Again, using my brother-in-law as an example, he's a dad. He talks all the time when he feels excluded at playgroups by the mothers. He goes to playgrounds and he, again, doesn't feel quite right. Women are not necessarily any more accepting of men in these spaces than men are in the opposite direction. Oh, spicy, mate. (laughs) Well, they are. I mean, it's just like, in fact, I go a step further in the sense that women's in-group bias, which is the technical term what we're talking about, is significantly larger than men's in-group bias. Four times larger, I've read studies saying that women like women more than men like men. And men often like women more than like men. Mm. We're very reluctant to challenge that. And I feel like if you don't believe that exists, just ask any father who drops his kid off at the playground or any male teacher or any male nurse and ask them how they're accepted into those spaces because they'll be the same stories that I've heard. And again, they're not the same because we don't want to talk about them. And uh, we just go back to male teachers. There's also that has an impact academically on children too, where studies show that female teachers mark girls higher for the same work as boys. So two children doing the exact same work, exact same ability, a female teacher is more likely to mark that girl higher, grading bias within teachers. And similarly, male teachers are less likely to problematise boys' externalised behaviour. So boys are often seen as more naughty in school, whereas a lot of the time... And some of it might be ADHD, which doesn't get picked up, whereas a a man might be able to pick that up, I don't know. Or does a boy that's bored. Yeah, 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 hundred percent. Boy, boys, generally speaking, boys' learning styles are not quite the same as girls. They want to be a bit more physical. They want to be moving around, doing more practical activities. Again, kinespatial learning. Whereas girls, in general, are more suited to the long periods of quiet reading time. And boys don't want to do that. Like I was one of those boys. I just wanted to flip my table up and just start running around. WWE. (laughs) And I, I, yeah, and I, and I was a naughty boy, but I don't think I was a naughty. I was just disengaged and bored. And I guess the point I was saying is that a male teacher is more likely or less likely to problematise that behaviour and a male teacher is more likely to be able to identify a boy that's disengaged or bored versus a genuinely misbehaved boy. Because they recognise that behaviour. They're like, well, yeah, I was a boy once. I knew what it was like. So we need more male teachers in classrooms. On this podcast, mate, I do a lot of advocacy work and on other podcasts about tackling the symptom, not the cause. So, Mm. for example, Andrew Tate is the cause and the mm. symptom is the vacuum left by positive male role models. Is there a link between the lack of these male models, like in teaching, like online, like in popular culture, and men, specifically young men and boys, being drawn to mm. A, gangs, because they want to look for the positive yeah. male role models elsewhere, mm. and they, they don't find it, or toxic male influencers, because they are, like Andrew Tate or Sneeko, who dress up misogynistic and dickhead behavior with mm. telling them they are worthy or they are not toxic 
Yeah, I mean, I mean, every time Andrew Tate gets brought up on a podcast, I like to use it as an opportunity to say he is a dickhead and a misogynist, <laughs> as is Sneeko. Both of them can go fuck themselves. Sorry. Yep. I, I would agree. I hate them for the same reasons as everyone else, especially women. And I hate them for my own personal reasons because they damaged the profile of men and boys advocacy. Correct. I, I'm happy to call them out any possible opportunity and I want to. John um, Peterson's getting compared to them now, mate. Ain't it no, fucking sad? No, yeah, no. I mean, I'm not, I'm not a huge fan of JP either. But no, but I mean, at least his core message in his books is good, man. Come on. Like. Yeah, at least he, I think like, he is well-intended, whether you agree with him or not. And Jordan Peterson, I think, has given a net contribution to, to boys and men and society in general. Andrew Tate, very difficult to argue that. But he is, as you said, a symptom of a problem. And if we don't solve that problem, we'll get another Andrew Tate and another Andrew Tate. And yep. maybe someone even worse. Say this often. Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, we're not dealing with a problem. The problem being a massive lack of positive male role models. And not giving men purpose, identity, belonging. Oh, oh, yeah. And yeah, and not, and not allowing men and boys to have this discussion in their own space. We're sort of willing to let men and boys talk about this, but only through feminist frameworks as part of a feminist space. And anything that's outside of that is mis- inherently misogynistic or incel, whatever this and that. Mm. And I'm like, those men and boys are going to have that conversation whether you want them to or not. And they deserve it. And they have every right to have the conversation. They'll just if, do it in the dark, mate. If it's not here, it'll be mm. in the furthest recesses of the internet. And they'll be with... In a Discord chat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and it'll be, it'll be with malevolent podcasters like Andrew Tate. And they'll basically manipulate those men for their own personal benefit. I don't think Andrew Tate really gives a shit. He just nah. wants to make money. And he's found a bunch of disenfranchised young men and boys who are lonely and pissed off and angry. And he'll manipulate them to make money for his own benefit. And the problem is not, I've always said the problem is not necessarily Andrew Tate, although things he's saying are problematic. The problem is how many men and boys are listening to him. Mm. And he was like, what, the fastest growing influence of all time? So it's impossible. Yeah, he's a genius at marketing. I can't deny that. Yeah. Well, he's a ge- well, genius in the sense that he's located a massive target market for whom no one is speaking. And I'm like, that is the bigger problem, in my opinion. Mm. And we need, we need to bring those boys and men back to well-meaning discourse while simultaneously confronting the other problem which is they've not been given a space to have this conversation either. Yeah. And men wanting to talk to other men in men's spaces is not misogynistic. And men only very... spaces is not misogynistic, guys. <laughs> Let's like, be real. <laughs> I support women's spaces too. But there's something very important, healing and spiritual even about men's spaces. And there's nothing to be apologized for, nothing at all. And I feel exactly the same for women. And Correct. If we, were, if we, were we all need our own women... spaces, mate. We all need our own spaces. And, yet, and if we were to deprive women of those spaces in the way that we've deprived men, I'm sure they would turn to some asshole online in mm-hmm. the same way as the men have turned to Andrew Tate. I've got two topics left to discuss, mate. One issue which is very, very taboo to discuss for many reasons is male circumcision. Now, I don't want to go into the explicit details because it'll make me feel a bit sick and queasy. Mm. But when do you stand on it when it is done to baby boys? Stereotypically a practice, as you've mentioned before, in religious circles mm. on Jewish infants, but also Muslim babies too. I don't think it's a Christian practice, but I'm pretty sure that's correct. Well, in the UK, we're, we're lucky yeah, sure, to have sure. very low rates of circumcision, as well as in Europe in general. My, my personal take on it is it's abhorrent. It's an abuse of children, the earliest possible stage. That is my opinion, but the more important opinion is that of human rights. And circumcision against infant boys is seen the same way as it is against girls. A violation of human rights. In four different human rights documents, it's considered a violation and there's an increasing number of national medical organizations, particularly in Europe, uh, calling it that. They're saying it's an abuse of boys. It has no medical benefit or very little medical benefit. It's basically a normalization of violence. Would you say it's MGM, use. like FGM is? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the thing is that people don't understand about FGM. 
is that there are various different types of FGM. There's, so there's FGM type, well, I mean, we're going to get into nuts and bolts of it. FGM type 1A specifically is any surgical alteration to the prepuce of a, of a girl. The prepuce is basically the clitoral hood, and the clitoral hood is the exact same biological tissue as the male foreskin. So type 1A is basically removing that or pricking it. That is directly comparable to male circumcision. So specifically type 1A FGM is the same, quite literally, as male circumcision. That's not to say there are many more types of FGM that are significantly more serious and are, are horrific. I won't even tell you about them. I would feel sick. <laughs> they, are, they are not comparable to male circumcision. But then in the UK, there are certain bits. That are So basically in the UK, by law, if a fully grown woman goes in and has her labia pierced with consent, she's considered a victim of FGM. So wow, I would, really? So I would say okay. a, a grown woman going into a shop and having her labia pierced, that is not comparable to a baby boy being struck down mm. and having his foreskin removed against his consent, without his consent. So it's impossible to say one is the same as the other because there's so many different types of both. There's some yes. really horrific forms of male circumcision and there's even more horrific versions of FGM. The problem is that circumcision against infant boys is done without consent, has very little medical benefit at all, mostly done for religious and cultural aesthetic reasons. And when you're talking about consent, a baby boy cannot give it to you. And there's no, there's no ifs or buts. And that's the most important bit. And it, I think it's, it's horrific. It's so widely adopted now that like over a billion boys and men have had it done across the world. And it's very difficult to talk about because inevitably you are going to talk to men or boys who have been circumcised. And they're very protective over it. And they don't want to hear the negative impacts it can have in terms of it can increases sexual dysfunction. Circumcision is the removal of most of the nerve endings on the penis. It removes mm. a sensitive part of the penis. And it, and it basically leads to a, a sexual dampening. And no one wants to hear they've been abused. And man, no. no man wants to hear they've been abused, do they? No. As you state on your Instagram page, 100 baby boys needlessly die every year mm. from circumcision in America. And one of the most... I'm going to say it fucked up stories I've ever seen was one you posted, which detailed how very rich millionaire celebrities are using, in air quotes, miracle face treatments Mm. harvested from the foreskins of Korean baby infants, boys, Mm. to make their skin, in their words, or the advertising, radiant and extra smooth. Now, some of these celebrities include Sandra Bullock, Oprah Winfrey, Kate Blanchett and Kate Beckinsale. And one was even shown, you posted a clip of it, I could not believe I was watching this, was shown to one of the American kings of comedy, Steve Harvey, on his show. Mm. And the audience actually laughed Mm. when it was disclosed that baby foreskins had made the treatment he was sampling. Mm. Can you just tell my listeners about this story? And I mean, try not to make them feel sick, because I certainly did reading this and watching it. So basically, the foreskins of baby boys in South Korea are removed and sold or donated or whatever else to um, the beauty industry. And from that, they are able to clone the foreskin numerous times over years to basically create face cream for rich celebrities. And in the exact way described, where we're using human tissue taken from unconsenting babies to create really expensive face treatments for millionaire celebrity, mostly women. It's very difficult to know how many foreskins they're using because it uses a technique where the foreskin is cloned. So it's not like every single bottle has foreskin in it or if it does it's it's sort of biological tissue that's been cloned but ultimately it doesn't really matter if it's just one foreskin you're still using it and it's still it sounds like an episode of like black mirror or worse mate worse it's like crazy it's worse because it's true there are loads of barbaric circumcision procedures there's one i mean called let's it's a prepare i think and it's basically i'll give you it's the translation is oral suction 
And it's basically a lot of Jewish ultra-Orthodox cultures, especially in America, practice it, where the baby is circumcised by, not a medical practitioner, by a mohor, and then the man places the baby boy's penis in his mouth. Fucking hell! And provides oral suction to stop the wound from clotting. And that happens to thousands of baby boys in America every single year. So they're being circumcised and then sexually abused for no reason, no reason whatsoever. And that's one of the causes of death because obviously that leads to infections. They can get herpes, can actually clot the blood and that leads to death. Uh, there's infections and then also it can just bleed to death. So there's a lot of medical complications. And yeah, about 100 baby boys in America die every single year at least. And there are some horrific cultural practices. Well, we've got one topic left, which is... <laughs> Even, probably even darker than this. I don't know how we're going right. to get darker, which is sexual abuse. And I'm going to split it into two categories. One is in prisons and the sexual mm. abuse of men in prisons and, and the sexualization of Justin Bieber, which you've spoken about quite mm. a lot in your platform, which also shocks me quite a lot. Now, the former has quite darkly become almost a bit of a joke in modern society mm. and data obtained by the observer in may 2023 showed that nearly 1000 rapes were reported to have taken place in prisons in england and wales since 2010 with a further 2336 sexual assaults reported to police in the same period and more terrifyingly experts warn that the true figure as we probably could guess mm. for both crimes may be far higher mm. because of under reporting mm. so this is essentially a sexual violence epidemic mm. but why is it still acceptable to joke about well, people don't want to use male victims in the context of sexual violence, although it absolutely is it is sexual violence. But people don't want to talk about male victims of sexual violence, and they don't want to accept the fact that we have normalised such violence, especially in the prison system, forever. Like, we literally make jokes about male victims of rape in prisons, like the whole, oh, don't drop the soap. The numbers I looked at, over 900,000 cases of sexual abuse in American prisons. So wow. nearly a million again unpopular but if you actually include those numbers in sexual violence statistics in overall there are more male victims of sexual abuse in america if you actually include the prison population and i'm like that is a very unpopular thing to say but that does not make it not true because it is true and <laughs> we do nothing to help these men we just joke about it quite literally just make jokes about them and everyone's like well they're prisoners they deserve it i so, know they don't they deserve justice and they should do their time and they should be protected from sexual abuse and it's interesting because it highlights the correlation between people who are sexually abused and people who then go on to become sexually abusive themselves. Mm. So there's a, a huge, even in prisons, there's a huge prevalence of child abuse in prisoners. Like the majority of prisoners have been abused as children. And that's a correlation we cannot ignore. There's a huge overrepresentation in all different things in prison. And we don't want to talk about it. And we just want to lock them away and not discuss it. But um, in terms of sexual abuse of boys, Again, that's a great example in terms of suicide. Like uh, a boy who is sexually abused in adolescence, 10 times more likely to attempt suicide later in life. And again, everyone wants to talk about male suicide. Well, it, ta it takes us on average, sorry to cut you, mate, but it takes us on average 18 years for disclosure, on average for a man to disclose sexual that's crazy. abuse. That's crazy. <laughs> but I guess the point I'm making, and yours is a great point as well, but the point I was making is we want to talk about male suicide because it sounds good and it looks great on Instagram account. But unless you're willing to talk about things like sexual abuse of boys, which is a direct cause of male suicide, then I would question how useful your advocacy is being. Because, like I said, 10 times higher to attempt suicide if a boy has been abused early in life. And I'm like, who's talking about that? No one. Apart from Well, we are, mate, yourself. so at least there's apart that. From yourself, <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't make this argument, but a counter-argument or devil's advocate to this is the men who are being abused in prisons are being abused 
by other men. So they would say maybe it's a symptom of patriarchy itself. What would well, you respond well, to that? No, there were no women in male prisons. So, I mean, it's, you obviously got a bit of a captured market there. But that's not to say women don't abuse men. They absolutely do. Like I'm doing a post right now, 71% of British men surveyed were abused by a woman, sexually abused, 71%. So very high. And that's what's called the hidden, hidden victim, which is an interesting concept because society does not want to talk about male victims of sexual abuse. That's number one. But society also does not want to talk about female perpetration of oh, sexual no. abuse. <laughs> so if you have a male victim of female perpetrated abuse, he is doubly invisible, twice as unpopular to talk about. But that is a massive problem. And even if it's true that almost all sexual abuse against men is by other men, I'm like, well, so what? That doesn't mean it hurts any less. It's not any less devastating. And I'm like, if you're more interested in pointing out the genitals of the perpetrator, then I would suggest that you don't care about any sort of victim of abuse. Again, you're just falling back to this very tribal, childish, team A versus team B, rather than let's look at this man who's been sexually abused, regardless of the gender of the person who did it, and let's actually give him support and make him feel seen, rather than just pointing directly to the perpetrator. And that happens all the time. Like Men are more likely to be assaulted walking home from work. That's a fact. But then you say that, and everyone's like, well, who's doing it? And I'm like, I don't necessarily think that's the most important thing right now. And we don't do that for any other group. Like, I could say gay women, lesbian women have the highest rates of domestic violence of any relationship. Mm. But I don't say, well, it's a woman doing it to another woman, therefore no longer matters. Like, I would say that's sort of an irrelevant fact in comparison to who's being abused. Or like knife crime. As you know, we talked about gangs, so we should go back to that. But gangs is often young black men stabbing other young black men. But we don't say, oh, that's black. I mean, we did say that, lesser now. We don't say black and black crime, therefore it doesn't matter. So we need to extend that common sense compassion to men and forefront the needs and well-being of the victim rather than just pointing out the sex of the perpetrator endlessly. It's very invalidating. Oh, and that comes back to fatherlessness as well, mate. So mm. for sure. Well, just on that note, just gangs, you're very right in the sense that a lot of people that join gangs come from fatherless homes. Yeah, or terrorists as well. Yeah, like and terrorist groups, joined, yep. like literally terrorist groups like ISIS and far-right racists or white supremacist groups, they target boys about fathers because they know those boys are looking for a new family, a new sense of belonging, some sort of a leadership, and they basically manipulate that boy to give him a sense of belonging, but within a yeah, gang. Yeah, it's abuse. It's a form of abuse. Yeah, yeah. and uh, again, that's, that's why so many men, fatherless boys, sorry, are in gangs. One of your great strengths, man, you have many strengths, is you. your ability to point out stories that have affected men and that have literally happened in plain sight. And one of mm. many, as I mentioned earlier, which shocked even me, was the open and pretty naked sexualization of a teenage Justin Bieber mm. when he was first on the rise as a global pop superstar. You mm. pointed to several examples of this committed by mm. predominantly female, but also one example of a male celebrity, in their mind, done as a joke, but have aged pretty horrendously just tell the listeners about these well just different examples the main one i i shared was when he was groped live on stage he was an accepting an award for like best young newcomer i think he was 18 at the time and he was groped and kissed on stage whilst accepting the award she basically grabbed him by the neck turned his head like kissed him on the cheek and then grabbed his bum blessed him as he was accepting the award 40-year-old woman, that was. He literally says, whoa, he, like, he like, pushes her back and like, stumbles into the microphone. Very difficult situation with the bee arm because he can't mm. shout because he's like, that's supposed to be a, like a lifetime achievement. But he was like, I just feel like I've been sexually abused right now. Or something like that. He says, I've been violated. I feel like I've been yeah. violated right now. And I'm like, he's literally gone and said it. 
And then everyone's just like, ha, 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 laughter track. And I mean, that's just one of many examples. He's on another podcast where he, I think he was 15 or 16. And again, the female DJ was saying, has your dad or mum had the sex talk with you? And she's basically trying to get a 15-year-old boy to talk to her about his experience of sex. And she, again, she's a grown, a grown woman. And you would not get a grown man on a popular radio show asking a teenage girl about her experience of sex. It's grown. And the, the, the sad thing is that every single instance, in that instance, just like on stage, he says, I'm not comfortable talking about this. Can we talk about the album? And I'm like, that's a 15-year-old boy that's more self-aware than she is. And he is asking, can we please talk about the album? And there's a bit of James Corden, who's an arsehole anyway. I think he's 16 in this video. And he's like smelling Justin at an award ceremony. Like literally leaning in. Oh, you smell nice. What is that? Dude, I never smell. Look at your eyes. Look how beautiful you look. And I'm like, again, Justin, you can see it on his face. So uncomfortable. And then he got um, Jeffree Star tweeting out, anyone wondered how big Justin Bieber's dick is? I think Justin was 15 at that point, 14. Fucking hell. You got Katy Perry grabbing his ass whilst hugging him. Literally a photo, her hugging him, grabbing his bum, and her like laughing about it. And he was 15 at that point. And I'm like, and Justin Bieber's talked a lot about suicide and having suicidal ideation. And that sort of, I guess, points to, I mean, I'm not in a position to diagnose him, but I'd say his continual experiences of sexual abuse and the way they were ignored by the media could not have helped. That is a correlation you can't simply ignore. And like I was saying, a boy who experiences sexual abuse, let alone repeatedly, significantly more likely to deal with suicidal ideation later in life. Well, well, and the public humiliation angle. It's it's been done on a public stage in front of millions of people. Like The interview with the woman who groped him afterwards, she was laughing about it with the interviewer. She said she she literally said, I molested him. She was like, ha, ha, ha. I basically molested Justin Bieber, saw my chance and took it. And then... The interviewer's like, they're laughing. They're like, oh, that was a bit cougar scary. And she's like, oh, yeah, I molested him. And I'm like, just the idea of a man saying that in this so like, flagrantly. This isn't even that long ago. This is what, 2012? Yeah. 2013? Yeah, not long ago at all. And the sad thing is, like, if that's what's happening to Justin on live TV, what's happening to him behind closed doors? Like, that's the sort of stuff people think they can get away with and have gotten away with in public. What are people trying to get away with in private and... I feel bad for Justin Bieber. I'm, I'm no fan of his music or him as a person, to be honest, but no one deserves that. No one. And it's not And, to, and one isn't very up. surprised either when you now look at that with the lens of him going off the rails for a couple of years mm. and then him also being vilified for those mistakes. Mm. When this teenage sexualization happens to him, you just completely understand it, in my opinion. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you're years as a child are very formative you basically repeat often the experiences of your childhood like one of the biggest causes of people becoming violent domestic violent relationships later in life is them having experienced physical abuse or spanking as a child really really great research on how boys or girls who experience spanking from their parents then become abusive later in life because you're basically teaching that child that he or she can solve problems through violence that's what spanking a child is a child is misbehaving, you hit them and you think that problem's solved when it isn't actually solved. But you've basically taught that child that he or she can then solve problems later in life through violence. It is crazy how being physically violent to your partner in the UK is illegal, as it should be, of course. But then being physically violent to your child is perfectly acceptable and not illegal in the UK. Or it is in Scotland and Wales, not in England. And I'm like, if anything, that's even worse because it's a child. Mm. And just for the immediate experiences, it's horrific. But the fact that you are then increasing the chance of that child then being violent to 
his or her partner later in life is even worse. So through that lens, you can understand Justin Bieber now. Mm, and I certainly do. None of that justifies being violent, but it does help understand what shapes violent behaviour later in life. Let's reflect on your work doing the 10 men now. So first of all, what has been your proudest achievement on it so far? Mm, I mean, I'm sure my proudest moments have yet to come. <laughs> well, yeah, good answer, mate. I mean, I, I've definitely... Uh, it's hard to even think of a podcast where I've not brought up Susie Bennett. And here she is again. Susie Bennett is my friend. She's a PhD researcher doing amazing work in male suicide. You posted her. I'm trying to get her on the pod in Amaz- January. So. <laughs> amazing woman and an incredible researcher. And she did a huge qualitative study on male suicide. So she, although she's a woman, she recognises the fact that male suicide, the conversation of male suicide has to be had by men and bereaved families. And they are the eternal reference point she talks about where we need to keep going back to suicide of men and be like, is this good enough? Have we learned something? Can we help more? And allowing men to be the gatekeepers of male suicide. And with my help, we did a large qualitative study with about 4,000 men across 80 countries. So a large survey asking men about their experiences of child abuse and bullying and domestic violence and understanding what are the associated factors of male suicide beneath not talking. So that body image, sex, pornography, food, all the other horrific stuff. Anyway, together we did that using my community to basically amplify her survey. And through that, we got you know, one of the biggest, probably even the biggest qualitative study ever done into male suicide. So I'm like, that's pretty helpful. And aside from being a study that added to the very thin on the ground literature on male suicide, I feel like even more importantly, a lot of the men who filled out that survey, which was a very lengthy survey, it took them about half an hour to do, so it's very in-depth, a lot of them reached out to me personally and said, um, that's the first time anyone's ever asked me about that. No one's ever asked me, why do I feel this way? I've never shared this experience of childhood or abuse or sexual violence ever. And this is the first time I've ever managed to disclose it. And they were like, they were thanking me for giving them the opportunity. And I'm like, I'm very proud of giving them that opportunity. But I'm like, that's not, I'm not the person you should have told. You should have had that disclosure to someone in your life, like a family member or a friend or partner or therapist, that essential conversation shouldn't be having had with an Instagram account. And I'm How did that make me. you feel, mate? Uh, great. I mean, good. Well, not great. I wasn't like, oh, brilliant. It's devastating, but also, yeah, proud, which is why it's answered mm. to my question. But it just made me really sad and highlighted the fact that men can talk and do want to talk and can talk eloquently. They haven't and, got the space, mate, have they? Yeah, so and they can talk eloquently. Yeah. Uh, the, the answers we were getting were just so beautifully poetic one of them, very interesting, said, um, at what point does a boy deserving of love and care become a man deserving of neither? And like so much, Susie calls it the wisdom of suicidal men. And I fully agree. The wisdom of suicidal men is something I've learned a lot from. Mm. Suicidal men are often seen as unfeeling, uncaring, totally emotionally illiterate. And I'm like, you've just not spoken to them. Well, you have, and they've not actually not listened to what they're saying. The wisdom of suicidal men is something I treasure and I'm very proud that so many of these men have allowed me to listen into such conversations. It just totally goes against the the meme of men don't know how to talk and uh, they do. Perhaps we just don't know how to listen to them. Yeah, it makes me very emotional to hear you say that, mate. Mm. You're, you're doing a great job. So Likewise. Thank you. As a final question, before we move on, what has this journey of doing the Tim Men taught you about yourself? Uh, I think I'm a lot more resilient than I thought I was going to be. Like, you do get a lot of shit. 
Like you do get a lot of people. <laughs> Welcome to the club. You probably get more than me because yours is bigger. <laughs> yeah, well, it's just like I just think if you're not get shit on by people, you're not living your life properly. I'm sure it's been wrongly attributed to him, but Che Guevara said, "The sad thing not to have friends, worse not to have enemies." And I feel like it's only through sharing your opinion honestly that you make enemies. And I'm mm. fine. I don't mind having enemies. I've got I've got things to say, and I'm not afraid to say them. And the benefit massively outweighs the cost massively. So I've learned I'm willing to go through a lot. I'm willing to lose a lot. I've sacrificed a lot. I've spent a lot of time doing this. I've lost a lot of friends and family. Same. I've started to lose friends. It's, it's, that's the thing that affects me the most, I think. Yeah. And I'm like, if I've gained more friends than I've lost. Could yeah. One more today. I, I also agree. Yeah. yeah. Nice to make another one, Fred. Um, <laughs> oh, cheers, man. <laughs> and I'm like, if you're willing to remove me from your life and your friendship circle for simply sharing my opinion in a way that's well-meaning and honest, then you were never my friend to start with. You're just an idiot. You're just wasting my time. So do one. <laughs> but that doesn't make it any easier. Yeah, that's probably the hardest. The personal cost is tough, but I've learned that. I'm willing to go through that. I'm, I'm going to keep on going until, if or when, someone proves me wrong. Mm. If someone can present to me the right combination of words or the right facts that makes me realise, oh my God, I've been wrong all this time. I'm happy to do that too. I'm very happy to be proven wrong, mate. I loved Adam Grant's book. I think it's called Think. Think again, the power of being wrong. I enjoy being wrong. I, mean, do you know what I, mean? but I know people won't believe that if they know me like, in my personal life. I would but, like yeah. to be wrong. Like if, if, if it's only for selfish reasons, like it's Sunday today. We should be out, you know, walking the dog or in the park, or having a cup of tea or coffee down the coffee shop. Instead, we're talking about this. I'm not getting paid for this. You're not getting paid for this. We're doing this out of our own, out of necessity. <laughs> and like, if I was to be proven wrong, I could like, you know, wind down my account and stop doing this podcast and I can go, yeah. and, live, and, go and live my life and spend more time with my girlfriend who's, hiding out of shot right now and like it's not <laughs> this is not particularly a great use of time for me in terms financially speaking like it's a huge cost financially and of my time and emotional well-being but here i am doing it nonetheless mm. there's another quote i can't remember who it's attributed to which builds on what you said it's something like a man who has no enemies is no man at all and i don't agree 100 percent with it but i do take something from it in being strong with your opinions and proud of you know mm. standing up for yourself and stuff yeah, I mean, Stephen Fry, who is my ultimate role model, he was saying progress is not achieved by guardians of morality, but by madmen, skeptics, heretics, and naysayers. And I'm like, yes, yes, Stephen, like being a progressive, in my opinion. Welcome to a... the intellectual dark web, Stephen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just feel like progress is not achieved by just constantly, yeah, good thumbs up. Mm. It's about throwing stones, rocking the boat, being a heretic. And they say a skeptic, a hermit, like actually pushing back and challenging people, challenging popular convention, not just nodding along like a dog. So that's what I'm doing. I'm rocking the boat. I'm throwing stones at popular convention. And for the time being, I'm going to keep doing it. And there's no amount of friends lost or family members lost that I will stop doing that for. We've talked all about the Tin Men. Let's talk about your own mental health journey, mate. So I ask all my special guests on this topic this question first. Tell me back to early life, teenage years, and looking back, were there any early mental health experiences, if any? Who's the George we meet here? Yeah, I remember the earliest experiences of anxiety I had, but manifested themselves in a very physical way, in the sense that I struggled to breathe. The inability to actually feel like you get a full breath of air, to breathe properly. The only time I get it now... <laughs> during podcasts because this is a lot of attention on me i mean I've, I've lived a long time since then where i've not had any problems breathing but my breathing issues related to anxiety started very young some of my earliest memories 
would be my sister like on car journeys asking like why are you breathing so loudly and at that time I had no idea I was like I don't know is that not how everyone breathes but looking <laughs> back at it in value of hindsight I was like I was actually dealing with anxiety and then as an adult you know it gets worse and then I spent up three years being a carer for a former girlfriend who had very complex mental health needs and was you know suicidal at times and had drug problems mm. and self-harm issues and an eating problem and it was just like a pick and mix as we said the worst like, pick and mix, mix yeah. you do not yeah. want i was naive yeah. enough to be like oh i can handle this no problem but i did but it came at a cost and my anxiety got so so much higher yeah and then seek help talk about it i had medication for a while like propamanol which is like a blood thinner it didn't do much and my doctor when i first got diagnosed he was just like remember it's just in your head and i was just like what shit advice i'm like everything <laughs> Looking back, I'm like, everything's in my head. Like everything in my It's like that chicken run right? Jerry's like, it's all in your head. It's all in your head. It doesn't make it any less important. All pain's in my head. Like you wouldn't say someone has broke their leg. Don't worry, that pain is in your head, which is equally true and equally nonsense. So yeah, anxiety and then you always flip between anxiety and depression, those two seem to come hand in hand. So a bit of both. But now I'm feeling a lot better. I mean, I do feel a bit anxiety. I mean I feel it a bit now. But that's one of the reasons why I lean away from the microphone. So I can actually get, I can breathe. Because if I, if I would yeah. breathe properly, I'd be like blowing into this thing and I don't think your audience would enjoy it. But uh, <laughs> yeah, but I don't mind it. I mean, I wouldn't want to get rid of it. It's part of who I am. I often find mm. the most interesting. It doesn't define no, you, mate. But at the same time, yeah. I find the most interesting, charismatic people I've met in my life seem to have some sort of mental health problem. And it's just a sort of a cost for many of being who you are. Mm. And I'm willing to pay it. When you are a carer for someone and you have to be a bedrock for them and that person is in an extremely vulnerable place, you have to show a lot of resilience Mm. and resolve as otherwise both of you will sink. Mm. And I think there's a Tom Jones song that he wrote about his wife has a similar analogy. How did you navigate that challenge? Because it's extremely difficult. Well, I mean, I didn't. I mean, I did sink. We both, I mean, she's doing great now. She's like, went to university, came out and I haven't spoken to in a few years now, but she's doing better than she ever had. Partly thanks to me, but also mostly thanks to herself. But um, you're very right. Mental health, mental health problems are contagious in a lot of ways. Like if you're dealing or helping or spending a lot of time with someone with complex mental health needs, and you're not getting your own needs met, it gets passed on or contorted. If you don't find a release no, valve, that release valve's going to blow, isn't exactly. it? Exactly. Yeah. And when you're dealing with someone with mental health problems, a lot of time they can't get out of bed, they can't leave the house, they can't come for drinks you know, with your friends, so you're inevitably stuck at home with them. Not stuck at home, I enjoyed it, but you're simultaneously isolated from the things that may have given you that social nourishment, the emotional nourishment, the people that would actually have listened to you, you're not able to spend as much time as you would have as well. So it's like a double hit, that you're burning a candle at both ends, and they're just not able to listen to what you're going through. Like, I mean, a lot of people I talk, I mean, I ask, I tell lots of people to get therapy, and they're always just like, well, you know, my husband or wife they listen to what i'm saying and i'm like that's not fair on them they can't be the only person because then it becomes a crutch fair on them and they're not qualified no and i'd say go get a therapist so yeah i definitely struggled and very hard and the ending of that relationship was a very good thing for me long term it was really sad because basically that same girlfriend accused me of abusing her or basically said what i did felt like abuse to quit her and i was like you are so ungrateful for everything I sacrificed for you. Not only are you not thanking me for what I did, what I gave up and lost, 
like years of my life and quite a lot of my money, you know, supporting her. Now you're accusing me of being part of the problem. And she said, um, I felt like I was controlling her and I was jealous of her. And I was like, those are equally absurd. I'm extremely proud of you. I was the one that was trying to get you out the house. A lot of that came from her therapist, who was very much not a fan of mine. But yeah, no, he was, I'm glad it's over. You learn a lot mm. from, from that personal experience of caring or looking after her from or spending time with someone that's very mentally unwell. You learn a lot about walking on eggshells, this was how it's described, mm. especially with her condition. So everyone, you had to walk on eggshells. And I'm pretty good at walking on eggshells, but at the same time, I can also be quite ham-fisted and flat-footed. Yeah. We both love an opinion, so I think we both share yeah, that. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I said to her, I was like, I'm, I'm never going to speak to you again for as long as you keep seeing this therapist. I fundamentally do not agree with the narrative she's painting about who I am and that uh, you're free to keep buying to this. It's your choice. But that's your boundary, I'm, sir, I'm, mate. Yeah, I'm yeah. so not up for having my hard work. The hardest thing I've ever done was getting her through those years. And I will pay the price of that for the rest of my life in many ways. And I'm not willing to spend a second with someone that is not able to appreciate that. And certainly not someone that's going to accuse me of these horrific things that I never did. One story you told me off air, mate, was when it was getting to a point where you went into work and you locked yourself in the toilet just to get a space to release emotions. How did you feel in that cubicle? Was it your most difficult moment, would you say? At that time, I was very much transfixed to the physical manifestation of anxiety. I saw that as problem breathing. I was very much unaware or not willing to address the underlying causes of anxiety. You said it was a bear hug, didn't you? it was like a bear hug. In in terms of physically describing it, it was like a giant man had walked up behind me, wrapped his arms around my chest and just lifted me up. And I just felt like I was only getting like 30% of a full lung full of air. I would have to like just try and calm myself down. I would do, I would do some breathing exercises in the latter years of that. And that helped somewhat. But when you reach that point, you're sort of past the point of saving. You've got to notice it coming on before that and then manage it before letting it get to that point where you literally cannot breathe. One of the things I'll do is like, I found out if I yawned and breathed in, I would then get a full breath of air. But then when you get yawning all the time you get tired yawning is contagious that was specifically <laughs> when i was working at a production company as a director and i you know i was doing quite a lot of different projects stuff maybe a dozen different films at once and then i had a girlfriend at home who was suicidal so my day was go to work do as much as possible run home at lunchtime <laughs> run home so i can spend as much time as possible you know make sure she's eating something try and get to have a shower get her out of bed she would often come and meet me for lunch which is a really good way of having a routine so get her out of the house have lunch over every single day, buy a lunch, stuff like that. And then I'd go back to work, not tell anyone. Eventually told my boss. Didn't tell my friends or family, really, anything. And then it came to a point where I just literally couldn't breathe. So even then, even like not wanting to hold up my hand and be like, I need help now, I would lock myself in the bathroom. And like, you know, spend 10 minutes just sat, sort of stood in there, just trying to breathe, like quite literally trying to breathe. Did any of this experience shape your desire to start the Tin Men and give a platform for other men just to see stuff, maybe not come to you directly, but just to see content that they aligned with or they agreed with or they would find helpful? Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm sure it had. That would not have been the primary motivator. You and I are very different in the sense. You're more, as you described, you're more about giving men a voice to speak and as, as we are doing now. But I don't do that as much. Although I do do that, I'm more about just sharing objective information and research from a more of an academic, if I can call myself that, analytical, analytical yeah, objective. Yeah, yeah. Every fifth post, I will do a question about 
men tell me about your experiences of Y or X or whatever. You get great engagement. I get nothing. Yeah. Everyone's scared. <laughs> to be honest, those posts are really easy to do in terms of time-wise. So I, I do those to give myself a chance to spend time on the, the bit more time-intensive posts. The sausage is being yeah, made. Yeah, I'm like, just get a quick one out and then I can spend more time on the, the more original content. But yeah, I mean, I'm, I think I like, get a lot of messages from men who say they feel seen having read results. So when I put my post in New Year saying 71% of British men surveyed have experienced a sexual abuse, although that is a stat from a research paper from last year, I think a lot of men will feel heard by that. Because when we talk about sexual abuse against men, it's often seen as like a little, you know, a few percent rounding error. A niche. Yeah, yeah, trivial. One person I spoke to was particularly horrible. Described these men as infinitesimally small. And she did the whole this big hand gesture. No, this big, infinitesimally small. Like Ross from Friends. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I was like, well, (laughs) 71% is not small or infinitesimal. So I think I do share the experiences anecdotally of men. And those are important. That is not the meat of the tin men and the amount of messages mm. I get from men thanking me it motivates me more so I do enjoy getting messages and thanked and acknowledged that's very kind there's no money to be made here there's no brand mm. as I say to people there's no money in mental there's health no, mate well, especially <laughs> for men like, there's no brand yeah. deals for me you no know, sponsorship brand partners whatever so the kind words of my followers are more than enough and kindly received oh definitely before we reflect after you came out of this period how did it change your perspective on a few things? So, for example, life on other people who are maybe full-time carers and will be for years or even decades. And what did you learn about yourself too? Yeah, I mean, anyone that spent any amount of time caring for someone or being around carers will immediately have a massive appreciation for what they go through and don't get paid to do. Although I was a carer in the sense that I got like certain benefits in terms of like I could go into like cinemas for free or go to art exhibitions for free or get discount on my rail fare. You don't get paid. I mean, I didn't get paid. I mean, most carers do it because they love the person they're caring for. So I appreciate how much work they do, how much emotional work and about support for free. And they're not blessed with the same outlet. Who's caring for the carers, I ask. And um, Mm. I think I've learned a lot about that. I've learned what I can do. And also what I can't do. There is so much everyone can do, but there is also a limit. And there is a point where you do have mm. to actually get help. And there's obviously nothing wrong with getting help. And you just got to learn when that point is. And hope that you can get the resources mm. and the help is mm. there to mm. help you. Do you know what I mean? That's what I say to people. It's all well and good saying reach out. But what if the person that they go to doesn't give them the feedback or they can't mm. get therapy or they can't get medical? Do you know what I mean? Like it's such a reductive saying, I feel. And I really think we, should mm. need, to move, we need to move away from it. Also reach in, not just fucking mm. reach out. Exactly, yeah, and just understand, learning what your symptoms are, what your triggers are, I hate that word, triggers, but there are triggers. (laughs) Going to sleep, for me, would totally solve the problem, and I'd wake up and I could breathe again. I could breathe for about an hour, if not less, and it'd be normally when I'm brushing my teeth in the morning, where I'd feel my breathing being restricted, and then I'd spend the whole day like that, until I went to bed again. So I'd have a sweet one-hour window where I could breathe. And then the rest of the day couldn't breathe properly. So you learn when the problem presents itself and you're able to enact certain things to help manage or reduce it. But I guess you'll never be cured. There is no such thing as a cure Mm. to mental health. Just better and better ways of managing it. Let's reflect then on your mental health journey. So similar question as before. A, what has this mental health journey taught you about yourself? And B, 
if you could go back and talk to the George who was at the beginning of lockdown, wondering whether to start the Tin Men properly, maybe the George who was really struggling to be that carer he could be for that loved one, or the George who was struggling with his anxiety in that office toilet cubicle, what would you say to him knowing what you do now, mate? Keep going. Keep going, most of all. I'm enjoying the fruits of my labour now. Like I've got a massive community, loads of great friends. I get 99% of the messages I receive are very supportive and kind. But there was a time, you know, two years maybe, where it was the opposite, where it was just no support. Everyone's just dumping on you. Everyone hates you. You're getting called all these horrible things. You've got no community to support you or help lift you up. And you're basically speaking to yourself. Like for the first year or two, very few people following you. And you're just speaking to yourself. And that's the hardest bit. To get through that period on your own requires a lot of self-belief and determination and hard work and consistency. So No passion, no mm, point, mate, as Eddie Hans exactly. says. And I'm like, if you're not willing to go through that, then I don't think you deserve what comes next anyway. So I would say just keep going. And there's a large community of people waiting for you at the end of that road who will make up for it they will pay you back dividends for the sacrifices and I'm enjoying that bit now and I'm hoping it keeps going but I would just say life is about standing up for what you believe in and not giving a damn what other people think and there's no apology to be made for that and that includes talking about men and boys and stop apologising <laughs> there's a sense of shame around men and boys advocacy that just should not exist like you've almost got to apologise for it. You've got to get down, kiss the ring. Very British thing, isn't it? Sorry, well, mate. Sorry, sorry mate. <laughs> oh, this thing, you mentioned Richard Reeves, and I like Richard Reeves. I love his books, read his books. Don't agree with everything well, he says, but I. I agree with 70 to 80%. Uh, that doesn't yeah. mean he doesn't offer useful opinions. But no. I really increasingly dislike how he constantly undermines himself. He has this phrase, he just trots out every single time. He's like, you know, just because we're talking about men and boys does not mean we don't care about women and girls. The you caveat. Don't need to say that. The, the caveat. I call it the caveat. Obviously, yeah, yeah, we yeah. care about women and girls. We don't need to shame ourselves, undermine our point, and pay penance. Like men and boys deserve a conversation in their own right, and there was no apology mm. to be made. What's the phrase like? Defenestrate or self-flagellate? Yeah, one of those two. Yeah. <laughs> Self, self-flagellating. Yeah. And I mean, I, I love Richard Reeves, big net contributor, but I wish he would stop doing that because he just undermines and weakens mm, the same point. So that's what I tell myself: keep going, don't ever apologize, and just keep going. It'll pay off in the end. And enjoy yourself. As a content creator, you've got to enjoy the content you're creating. You'll never keep going otherwise. And I'm, I'm, I guess I'm addicted to it now. I love it. I love creating content. It's so much fun. And uh, I just can't seem to stop now. Our final topic, mate, and it's one I try and have with all of my special guests, if we have time. It is a general natter and quickfire chat about mental health. So firstly, how is your mental health, mate? <laughs> Good. I think of drank a bit too much and eaten a bit too much over Christmas, but it's, it's pretty decent. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Haven't I mean, we all? That's my own fault. But uh, in general, I mean, speaking in the long term, they're great. I mean, they're a really great place and better than I've been in many years and very fulfilled and satisfied and happy with my life. But I also feel like I've also said happiness, sorry, mediocrity is the price of happiness. And what that's saying is that people that are just happy with who they are and how they are and where everything is in their life, they often don't ask for more. So I'm not happy in the sense that I'm always willing to ask for more or demand more of myself. Like every time I put a post, I don't like it that much. I'm like, that could be better. That could be better. That could be better. And it gets better. But the price of that is never really happy with anything you make because it all looks like crap. 
So I'm happy, as happy as I possibly can be until it affects my productivity. <laughs> That's a bit dystopian, but yeah. And what age were you when you became self-aware of your mental health and you realised that the feelings you were having weren't physical and they were actually in your mind? Mm, uh, 23, mm-hmm. maybe 10 years ago. And was it a eureka moment or a gradual process? Gradual process. Mm-hmm. Like I said, like I went struggling with breathing. Going to well, yours was physical, so it was both. <laughs> well, I, well I, wanted, I just wanted to know it wasn't like anything seriously wrong with my lungs. And the doctor was like, yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. Nothing wrong with your lungs. Uh, this is a psychological problem, but don't forget, it's just in your head. And I was like, really, just in my head. He was and so close he, to getting it. <laughs> yeah, and then he just prescribed me my propaminol, which I had for a bit, not for long. So yeah, 22 was when I decided to actually go and seek professional help for anxiety. I think you've kind of answered my next question. So was that the first ever conversation you had with someone about your mental health? And how did it feel? Did it feel like a big moment or something easy and normal to do? Big moment. Always a big moment. Mm. I mean, that probably was the first time I'd spoken about it. In a, I mean, I'm sure it's brought up. But I mean, there's it, one thing saying, oh, I feel a bit sad today. And there's another thing, having a, an actual convers- a real conversation about your mental health. So that would have been the first conversation I'd had about my mental health. And it was not easy. In fact, it was more, I just, it wasn't necessarily a conversation for my mental health. It was a conversation to find out if it was a physical problem in terms of my lungs. It wasn't like I was there to speak about my mental health. I just wanted to know I'm not like, I've got like lung cancer or something like that. So that was the beginning. And now I still don't like talking too much about my mental health. And I do feel like there's something to learn about the more traditionally male forms of managing your mental health that stoicism mm. for example everyone talks mm. about you know, it's good to talk about your mental health and it certainly is but sometimes it's good not to talk about it sometimes it's just good to process yeah, it yeah i'm a big reflect. advocate of not oversharing either yeah like yeah. to reflect on how you're feeling to go through it in a very mindful way like i think i'm a lot more mindful of my mental health where i can recognize an emotion i can understand how i can control that emotion or what i can do to make it better and then i let it go i process it in a mindful way in terms of meditatively I don't necessarily want to talk about every single thing. Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. But we look at women as if they are the teachers of all things mental health related and we should learn to speak and express ourselves like women do, and we should. But so too, I feel like we should learn from men, the more traditionally male stoicism of men, and to understand that you can also process your emotions. You don't have to always express them. Yeah, I always say that stereotypically women are a lot better at emotional intelligence Mm. But men are often very much better stereotypically at having the hard truth conversations mm. and resolving conflict. Mm. Yeah, I think that's fair. But then obviously there's... And there's outliers in there's, both. Yeah. yeah, I mean, some men are excellent talkers. Like us. Yeah, well, hopefully. <laughs> You've spoken there a little bit about positive tools, mate. So what other ones do you use to improve your mental health or help you feel better? Which ones have worked? Maybe which ones that you've tried but haven't? I like seeing myself as three Georges. The three Georges and this the free Freddies as well, and the free everyone else listening to this podcast. You have the past George, present George, and the future George. That's the free Georges. Mm-hmm. The present George is very forgiving of the past George. So mm-hmm. if past George didn't clean the dishes, which he hasn't done, <laughs> to be fair, or hasn't cleaned up as he used to, or hasn't done something he said he would, present George is like, don't worry, past George, it's fine. I'll sort that out. It's okay. Don't worry about it. You tried your best. It's fine. And the present George has a second role where they're, they help out the future George. So they do favours. This for is a problem with future me. I yeah. am future me. <laughs> like the future George will be like, you know what? I'm going to do the shopping. I'm going to go to the supermarket and I'm going to do the shopping and I'm going to help out the future George. And obviously when time shifts and the future George becomes the present George, you thank the past. Well, thank you so much, George, for doing the shopping. 
it sounds like a crazy multiple personality disorder, but that ability to forgive and help is what comes out of that. That's just a framework. But the idea is that you forgive the past and you help the future. It's like saving a snack for a post night out that you don't eat yeah, before you go. Yeah, that's almost impossible <laughs> to do. And I'll eat the whole snack. I'm awful for that. Self-control, really bad. What is the best book, or as I call it, mental health Bible you've read for your mental health? No, it doesn't have to be self-help related. It can be. And if you can't think of a book, an album, TV show, any piece of popular culture. Um, specifically self-help, the book I enjoyed the most. I mean, I'm, I'm currently reading Men mm. Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus. So that's obviously a big one, but I'm only a chapter in, so not that one. I really enjoy um, How to Make Friends and Influence People. I think it's David Carnegie, and it is amazing. It is, that is, I guess, the Bible of self-help. I say I'm not particularly original by saying that. No, that's, that that's the first time someone really, said it on this podcast, mate, to be fair. Yes. How to make friends and influence people, then. That's mine. And like, it really helps you understand how other people talk to you and how, how to treat people and how to motivate people and how to be a leader mm. and how to like make friends and influence people in a very literal way. And it talks about positive reinforcement. The first chapter is never condemn or criticize and the second chapter is be lavish in your admiration and praise so it's all about don't criticize people you want to positively reinforce of compliments and kindness because criticizing people doesn't help it just makes people want to prove you wrong it pisses people off and they want to come back and it just doesn't seem to yeah, you've got to read it yeah. it's great yeah, yeah. yeah and it's like but being positive is uh, a lot more beneficial right to put it in a really good example I think it might have been Truman. Some American presidents flying a plane, something went wrong with the plane and that the engine cut out, some sort of engineering mechanical problem. He landed the plane safely and then the engineer who was in charge of maintaining his plane was like, well, I'm fired. I'm in so, so much trouble. <laughs> Almost killed the president of America. And Truman, whoever it was, walks up to him, pats him on the back and says, I want you to be my engineer forever now because I know you'll never make the same mistake again. And you know full well that engineer or mechanic would go away and he would put in the best work of his life for that man. And had Truman come over and just castigated him and shouted him down, you're an idiot, I can't believe it, he would not have benefited. So that's a really great example of being positively reinforcing something, even when someone's made a massive mistake. I don't get that right, but I try to learn from it as much as possible. I I mean, I get it wrong all the time. (laughs) We all do, mate. I do, certainly. If there was a mantra in life that summed up your mental health, what would it be and why? Keep going or something else? Uh, I always think life is about sacrificing for the things that you love. No sacrifice, no victory, as the yeah. Transformers quote is. Well, <laughs> that's a very they, random quote, but I love stole, that film. They stole it from me. I just think that's what life is, like finding things you love and sacrificing for it and never giving up on it and that's keep going. And I used to know like the classic thing where you look back, end of your life, looking back, it's like, you don't regret the failures, you just regret the things you never tried. So mm. I don't want to be full of regret. I'd rather fail than having not tried and never know if I would have been successful. Mm. So you can carve out some sort of mantra from that. But overall, I just feel like sacrificing for the things that you love. That's what life is. I've got two questions left. The first one is, what do you love about yourself? Oh. <laughs> Jesus. All right. Um, British people hate answering this one. I know. I don't like compliments, so I hate them. <laughs> so you're asking me to give myself a compliment, which is the one I hate the most. Maybe a quality or a trait, then. <sighs> um, I think I am good at communicating complex things in a very simple way. Definitely. I can utilise various different creative skills to do that. 
I just love what I do. I love writing, I love designing, I love making films, I love editing, I love taking photos, I love filming stuff. I really enjoy working out which of those creative tools is the best suited to communicate a very complicated message. But overall, I love writing. Writing is my first love, and it spun out from there. But I love sitting down with 10 slides, which is how many slides I have on Instagram, and I, but I need to use these slides to communicate a very complicated thing in a way that someone's willing to read. You want to have enough information that someone benefits from a piece of content you create. We don't have so much information that they just skip it because it's too dense. And I think I'm good at managing that balance. If I could pay myself a compliment, that's as much as I'm willing to give myself. So. <laughs> you did well, mate. That's a good one. Thank you. I've got one final question left, and it's a broad one. What more do you think we have to do to ensure men from all backgrounds, all classes, all walks of life feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or just their general mental health if, most importantly, they want to do it? Just think, we're past the whole men talking thing now. Men are talking. Now it's time to listen and also mm. to, to act upon what they're saying. It's too much I'm hearing men can talk, men can talk, men can talk. And I'm like, you're not even listening to what you're saying. You're not listening to what you're saying. Some of the things you're saying are uncomfortable. Some of the things we're hearing, we do not like. Some of the things they'll tell us makes us feel responsible and will require us to have some sort of accountability to fixing these problems. And I would say, do not shy away from those feelings. It's, I know it's icky and people are like, oh, gross, and it prickles. But that doesn't mean it's a bad thing. And sometimes you just got to eat your vegetables, as I said at the start of this podcast, and listen to the things men are telling you and ideally act upon what they've got to say. Because what they're saying, are, they're very real problems. And it's beyond just them individually to fix their problems. They need help. And help starts by listening. So I'd say listen to what you're hearing. Don't just endlessly tell men to talk. George, I said this to you off air, but this has generally been one of my most important episodes I've ever done. Thank you so much for coming on the Just Checking In podcast and talking to me, mate. Great. No, I'll have to have you back in the, in the future and I'm looking forward to hearing it. And thanks for having me on. Well, that's all we've got time for on this episode of the Just Checking In pod. I want to say a big thank you to George for being my special guest and for letting me check in with him. I'll put all of the Tim Men's social media handles in the show notes so you can find out more about the excellent work George is doing and see all of the stories that we discussed on the podcast in full and sourced and see obviously more of the media work that he's done. As always, thank you to all the vendors who tuned into this episode. I'll sign us off by saying, remember, if you've liked what you've heard, please give it a share on social media. Tell your friends or work colleagues about it. If you're feeling generous, write us a review and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. If you like what we're doing, please support us by going to patreon.com slash venthelpuk, all one word, or you can go to our link tree, that's linktr.ee slash venthelpuk to find out more about all the other ways you can financially support Vent. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember guys, it is always okay to vent. Thank you.